Happy 2024 everyone. Welcome back to Game in Hand. I guess it's a happy 2024 to everyone except all of our lunar calendar friends, and I guess every other calendar I don't know about because I play games and I don't edutain myself. It is January 25th at the time of recording. Uh, this episode is coming out super late because, lo and behold, maybe it just takes a little while longer to get words properly summarized for Baldur's Gate 3. Okay, maybe not just words, so maybe I'm just gushing in response to giving it my number one title of 2023. But now that I've some, had some time to digest and kind of re-listen to my nonsense, I can go through and talk about my completion and overall experience in preparation for this redo of my episode. After that, we can talk about what we have to look forward to in 2024 as we play the waiting game to see how games can top the top three best games of 2023. So I just want to say I have spared you a little bit. Before this was my TED Talk, a 30-page comprehensive analysis of what makes Baldur's Gate 3 a good game. You know, I could have thrown in some graphs and maybe survey results. The survey, of course, was conducted with the one child who lives in my house. She didn't like the survey. She prefers bananas and oranges. But let's be real. I got like halfway through recording this before I was like, oh my god, this is a laundry list, not a review. Oh, it was a lot of, oh, I killed the goblins. Oh, I saved the druids. Oh, I took the big druid with me. So let's face it. The fact that I'm coming at this again, I'm basically just going to straight out say this isn't the definitive talk or maybe even the most insightful review of Baldur's Gate 3 on the internet. The hardest part about making a review for Baldur's Gate 3, like I said, is not just gushing from start to finish about every slight encounter, every piece of character, art, thought process, lore that kind of just lodges in my brain rent-free. So consider this my step down from my cloud of poorly worded clarity to just kind of like talk about the game the way that I experienced it. It's going to be one of those super spoiler, 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 spoiler episodes because I'm basically just going to talk about it. Spoil a lot. Absolutely no filter. So as long as you're okay with that, let's get this out of the way. With regards to setup, I played on balanced difficulty with a keyboard and mouse. I did try to give controller uh, a try, and I definitely saw a lot of people calling up wheels of spells and items and showing that the game is playable. But as I embrace kind of a vacuum pack mule lifestyle, it's definitely a lot more tedious to do inventory management and to just manage things in combat than what probably most Xbox or maybe handheld players might sign up for even though those pots and pans are definitely worth a lot of money. In all seriousness, if I could pass along just one piece of information in this game, is vacuuming is absolutely not necessary in this game. There is literally no incentive unless you are just trying to get enough gold to pick up a couple early blues or maybe the odd super niche item for one of your party members to round them out. Because by the end of the game, I basically just had a full setup on every single member, even the members I didn't really want to play with. And by the end of the game, my paladin was an unstoppable force. And the reason I say that you don't have to vacuum is, when I got to Baldur's Gate and you get through the scenario where you finally meet Minsk, and the bank vault is robbed, and the guy is like, oh, how terrible, an entire grand city's citizen's savings was in there. And then you're like, oh, I'll get it back, only to see that the bag contained 10,000 gold. And I was like... Yeah, you know what, I can probably give it back, and I did, and I still had just a measly like 27,000 gold left over. Like by that point in the game, I had so much money, I simply just contemplated making extra custom characters to just round out all of the builds that I didn't get to even try, you know, like unarmed focus builds, bard focused gear, you know, that sort of stuff. Because at a certain point I was just kind of like compelled to complete the game. I almost wonder if I should just go back and try to like save scum a few things just to see what happens. Like if I put more money in the bag and give it back, if someone would notice or care. I will say though, just kind of in reference to that, the one thing that I avoided mostly through this game, big, big asterisks on mostly because I tried to stick to my own rules while breaking them occasionally, is not to just make a big save before a big choice in the game 
just to get the achievement and then continue on. I feel like throwing money in a bag to see what the reaction of whatever the, the bank manager, it doesn't really fall into that. Because as you get through the game, especially towards the end of the game, you definitely see a lot of your earlier choices just kind of tying into what happens later on. And so while it's kind of okay if you feel like you can only do one concise playthrough, maybe this is your 100% playthrough, then I mean go for it. But otherwise, I enjoyed the game so much and there's so much variety to D&D based games anyways, I would say save it for a concise replay. And that goes out to all of you sickos. If you romance the Mind Flayer, live with it. If you turn one of your party members into Squidward because the Emperor only romances you once, stick with it. And then seek help, but stick with it. Let's talk performance, because I'm going to be accused of maybe being a little bit inconsistent when I talk about gaming performance. I complain all the time that, oh yeah, Switch games run like garbage and new games run like potato. Baldur's Gate 3 is an absolute CPU hog, but you don't really have to worry about noticeable slowdown in the first two acts. But once you hit Baldur's Gate, the slowdown is very noticeable. But honestly, because of the because it's a top-down CRPG that barely moves, like I didn't feel that bad that I'd be hitting 40 FPS sometimes. Granted, I think my VRR panel contributes quite a bit to not noticing when FPS stays above 48. I guess I think that's what the range is. But I think the highly detailed but still kind of low-res graphics in this game makes 40 FPS forgivable. Especially when you only have to focus on like the movement of characters, you know, not looking at the full screen just like in an FPS game. Another piece of impact which probably plays into that CPU uh, constraints is uh, being a pack mule does impact performance. It might not be too apparent because just plain opening the inventory doesn't really have too much display uh, delay, but it's when you do interactions like throwing items that that mini bar UI is not designed to show you like 300 items. So like midway through the game, you can get a trident that when you throw, it does like a thunder shockwave once it hits something. Uh, and then early on, I had bar brawler to throw, to have that throw trait that adds, I believe it's the strength modifier to throw. And I was just kind of like a murder machine at any distance. Even after the nerf, I would say like you could progress through the entire game with just those, that item and that perk. But anyways, every time I call up my throw inventory, the game would physically lag for two seconds. Thanks to, I don't know, the millions of potions and flasks and shoes and pots and pans, I'd just basically been hoarding until I could get to the next vendor. And you might be like, oh, that's not too bad. But every time I threw the weapon and it dismissed the throw inventory, the game would just freeze and then catch up after the damage had been done. And that's with me selecting the little button that only shows you weapons in the tab. So it's just the kind of like pitfalls that you might go through if you are a pack mule. But otherwise, I'd, I'd say this is probably like one of the only odd, poorly optimized interactions in the game, aside maybe the odd, occasional, poorly angled camera view. But I don't know. I, I think I made it through pretty well with just being able to make do with the camera, so I wouldn't put too much emphasis on it. Regarding progression and party comp, I made a fairly rounded party but with mainly a focus on healing. I think part of this comes back to all the uh, uh, Alcat Pathfinder games that I ended up playing, just because of how much they put you through the ringer. And I put part of this blame on how early in the game you are introduced to Shadowheart, and the fact that she is the only healer that you get for a while. Granted, I feel like Shadowheart's stories is probably like one of the significant three, if I had to put the the party members lore storylines into like categories but anyways the fact that you know that you're getting a healer right off the bat is good especially when you aren't prepared to slam back potions after every fight or every time you get hit and uh those two short rests get used up quite quick and so you might hesitate to long rest after three fights so the long and short of it is i think a lot of people just take her along until you can get like a druid or do your own heal. And I say this even after selecting a paladin. 
The Paladin is like the most popular class because it is the king of self-sustain. I started with the uh, Ancient's Oath and then I was like, you know what? Maybe my first playthrough is going to be like my Edgelord playthrough. I'm going to go be uh, an Oathbreaker Edgelord and do what I want because that's how I want to do it. And then somehow halfway through, not even halfway through, I think it was like maybe like 20% of the way through Act 1. After I broke my oath, I was like, eh, okay, well maybe I can pick the morally right outcome for this encounter, but the next one for sure. And then by the end of it, I was just doing like a super goody good run. Early on, I was trying to figure out how to break my oath without doing anything too, too evil. Uh, and then like, I found out that, oh yeah, there's like a goblin who murdered everything and is set to death and I just freed it. And it's like, oh, you broke your oath. Well, in a multiplayer playthrough, it's just like, I found a bard and I pushed it off a cliff and I broke my oath. I guess you don't really have to think too hard about it, about uh, how to be an anti-paladin. But yeah, that was basically my path to oath breaking. I was kind of expecting more of an arc for kind of like vigilante justice when you start becoming an Oathbreaker, but it uh, honestly kind of sucked. The Oathbreaker comes and visits you and is basically like, oh, you broke your oath. Now you must follow the way of the Oathbreaker. And I was like, that's it? Oh, and if you pay me money, I will reinstate your oath. It's like, okay, well, that was kind of anticlimactic, but I was like, I can't even remember how much it was, but it, it wasn't insubstantial, but I think it was like 2,000 gold or something. And I was like, there is no way I'm spending $2,000 so that I can have like a healing aura again. But aside from like the lore side of things, uh, aside from like the spiteful suffering skill and maybe like the two times that I used dreadful aspect, the subclass kind of sucked. I mean, if it weren't for Hellish Rebuke, uh, and then when you hit, I think it's level seven, you get aura of hate finally feels like the class does something, aside from the fact that you still get the ability to lay on hands. Sorry, I'm going in circles. I keep doing this because I literally just keep going back to the fact that it's like, that one action I did was literally the only reason I broke my oath. I could have been just continue playing as like an Oath of Ancients Paladin because I was such a goody-goody, like, <clears throat> and that's why I started a second playthrough to just kind of be an edgelord. And uh, I have to go back and get Minthara. Just kind of talking about uh, playing with party. Uh, my initial party was Shadowheart, Lazel, and Gale. Eventually I replaced Gale with Karlak because I was kind of just tired of cantrips getting resisted early on. This was before they started putting out quality of life patches, or I guess subsequently me getting tired of being mauled. But like early on, you saw little aspects of how difficult the game could be. Party members were super quick to die. Uh, and if my life was basically filled with danger for the members of my party that were made out of paper mache, always trying to cast the highest level of spells before they died. I was super reliant on casting just kind of like the highest level of aid that you can early on. Uh, because that basically carries you through most of the game. Now that I think about it, I, I feel for me Lazelle died as much as Gale did early on. And most combats were usually just decided by how long I could keep Shadowheart alive to res whoever was down by using that uh, level 3 spell, mass, mass healing word? Anyways, Karlak kind of like melds with my brain of me smash things. Uh, and single function characters are kind of good when you need to like slog through a lot of stuff, but I don't know, it made for a dull party. So I was talking about Minthara, I saw her in the uh, Goblin Sanctum. But for some reason, I can't remember why, I started a conversation and then she like immediately attacked me. And I just assumed like, oh, well, she was evil anyways, who cares? While I was on like a murdering rampage. Because aside from that, uh, I basically just rotated those same characters early on. Uh, I, <laughs> I didn't even get Asterion right off the bat. I, after the goblin camp, I went and got him. Uh, and Will, I found him just because you run into him so easily, but... He never actually made it into my party once during the game. It, even Asterion uh, made it into my party because I only found out after I did his storyline that he flips out at you for killing the vampire lord. And like you go, okay, well your plot is complete, you can thank me later. And then he mopes, a wine, mopes and whines about not being the given the opportunity to become uh, an almighty vampire god. I kind of touched on it before, but I was like, there's different plot arcs and like how characters respond. 
and I don't know whether it was just like Lizelle had a uh, partial relationship thing, like boosting up how much she anti-hated me, but when I was doing everything for, uh, keep, I keep thinking Orpheus is the wrong name, but I'm, I'm confident it's Orpheus. Uh, I did basically the entire Orpheus plotline without her, freed Orpheus, had the conversation, like proceeded through everything. And then I went back to tell him like, okay, well we freed Orpheus. And she's like, I am furious. I was not there to talk to Orpheus. Oh, but you know, I can find it in my heart to continue to go on with you. I, I don't mind, winky face. So it was kind of a weird experience because, I mean, if you think about it, normally what happens in most AAA games is a party member will just magically pop up and appear next to you every time you're doing something that involves their plot. Where uh, Larian took the alternative approach of leaving your son at home and then going to Disneyland and this just kind of showing him the pictures of Disneyland after you've already gone. For more of the side characters that don't really have that deep of investment in the party, uh, I had Halson in the party a couple times only because it takes him forever for you to finally be allowed to use him. Uh, and early on, early game druids didn't feel that great to me, or at least maybe it was just like Halson's kit. But as someone who played a lot of Baldur's Gate, I definitely just kind of replaced Lazelle and Karlak with Jahira and Minsk out of nostalgia mostly. But it was also because I was getting basically to the point where I was soloing most content and everyone was just along for the ride or to kind of like speed up combat. Uh, I do want to talk about combat a little bit before I start talking about my story and my ending. Uh, I'm glad Larian pumped the brakes on ground effects being the enders of life because I couldn't imagine playing a caster group for the amount of like rest stops you need to use to restore all of your spell spell charges. A lot of combat was like pure positioning and like the magic of NPC dice rolling up better than yours, enemy AI putting them on like unpathable like blocks and stalagmites was kind of weird. I guess speaking of magic NPC dice, uh, make sure you turn off. I feel like everyone should turn off uh, karmic dice. Sometimes I think it plays to your favor for like nice lore rolls and conversations you have no business winning, but otherwise I feel like it hampers the the truly random feeling that comes from playing D&D, essentially. Like I said, my party always consisted of two smashers, myself and whoever else could smash, so like Karlak, uh, or Lazel, I guess, or Minsk in the end. Uh, I had my healing slave Shadowheart basically there forever, and then just kind of like the flavor of the month, my utility slot that started with Gale and just ended up being Druids. There were definitely a few uh, items and item interactions that definitely make you feel like damn near invincible, like right off the bat, like that you can literally get in chapter one and feel great. Chapter one is like cleric heaven for support healers, like clerics. There are goods that basically just set you up until late game. Uh, for example, uh, the whispering promise ring, which Volo sells if you save him, you can just buy it from him while he's in your camp and it gives you uh, unconcentrated bless for whoever you heal. Unconcentrated being like the big emphasis because it'll just last for two turns no matter what. You can get Hellrider's Pride, uh, you can steal it or buy it from Zevlor, which gives you, what is it, bludgeoning, piercing, slashing, haft damage. So it's just like an instant no-brainer when you can do that just by applying a single heal. And then there's some other smaller items like uh, the Ring of Salving heals an extra 2 flat HP when you heal. You can buy that from the Mind Flayer in the Mushroom Colony uh, in the Underdark. And then the Boots of Aid gives everyone 3 temporary HP every time you heal. The combination of all of that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you have some like crappy cleric who's 1d4 heal, well I guess plus Wisdom modifier, so you know, a, a 4 to 7 heal essentially becomes a 9 to 12 HP heal, plus bless, plus having bludgeoning, piercing, slash damage, your entire troop, especially your warriors, will just fall in love with you. Uh, I did mention it, but kind of having the highest spell level of aid early on is kind of a must. And then whatever, you know, mishmash of equipment that you want to throw together to stop monsters from destroying your squishy characters. I definitely didn't think about it early on, but I kind of like forgot the importance of finding unconcentrated spells 
that you basically cast as soon as you take a long rest uh, and will just help you through your entire playing experience. Having someone who can speak to the dead, speak to animals, you know, detect magic, so on, uh, ensures you leave no plot or even some of the fun interaction out. Getting armor that prevents you from being crit really softens the combat and definitely took a lot of the edge off of it. Because by the end, I just like, I had fun with it. I used Hero's Feast every time I rested. I summoned a, a Djinn and a Water Elemental that can basically AoE, uh, AoE heal, uh, AoE do damage, spam my shots. You know, honestly, my fourth character was uh, the Water Elemental. Jahira could just kind of like stand around and look busy and convenience heal when Shadowheart gets kicked. Because once I got set up, especially like when you get in later on, a lot of reviewers were definitely right. It does get super easy. And balance was basically just like a joke because it was nothing but butt kicking for goodness time. All the bosses that I went to go fight near the end of the game that they built up to were kind of an absolute joke. And it was a little bit depressing. And it's not just because I used like weird interaction items like the twist of fortune. No, I didn't put $10,000 on my enemies and then hit them once to watch them explode. Although, I did do it once, and I just kind of like giggled with Klee, but they, of course they patched the Twist of Fortune to consume all the gold that you plant on someone, or I guess that they might have had on them. Uh, so unless you want to go back to selling every pot and pan that you find, it might be okay for every once in a while if you put it on like a enemy for a non-scripted battle. Otherwise, I don't know, it, it doesn't belong on any character, though it was kind of fun while blasted. I always think about doing just like a solo play. Uh, but I do kind of want to do an honor bound with like a fully fleshed out group. Uh, maybe not do the lore of all the side characters, but just have like a super fun group. Uh, the one thing I'll say about solo play, which I've seen a lot of my friends doing lone adventurer playthroughs, uh, is just I kind of wonder how you manage uh, action economy. Like there is so much in this game that I value for having attack sponges that, you know, put your allies in the way so that you don't die. To me, it makes me think that you wouldn't want to just get EXP whatever you can. You'd be planning your fights carefully until you've at least tadpoles, tadpoled a few key essential skills. Like I said, it's definitely not a 100% run when you consider like super hard fights like the Raphael fight. And even now that I'm thinking about it, you wouldn't really even be able to do the achievement for freeing all the prisoners in the underwater prison. Even if you were some sort of like magical movement dasher, you just wouldn't have the action economy to do it. So let's do story recap to kind of like the best of my recollection. And I want to tell you all about my very goody goody run. I saved everyone I could. That seriously, I I know I did a very cutesy voice, but like, I saved scum so much. I saved scum. I saved scum so much in the House of Hope. I refought Raphael. I think it was like eleven times without the ability to cast Sanctuary on her, just so that I could try and keep Hope's sister alive, because of, like, how much Larian deeply plans these things. But, like, by the end of it, it was kind of stupid. She has, like, two extra lines of text and has no impact, no, no meaningful impact anyways. It's just, like, the more you go through the story uh, and dis different aspects of it, the more you definitely realize that there are so many outcomes for all the scenarios that you go through that, you know, whatever person who is making a complete walkthrough of this game has like a serious task on their hand. Uh, midway through the game, you realize in books that, you know, the Emperor is full of shit and that he's misleading you, which you don't really find out unless you're absolutely paying attention to, which I think is something that you could really miss if you're just kind of like mindlessly blazing through the game. But like there was also one point in the game where he was just kind of giving me more skeptical answers about and has and hesitations about like not going completely with this plan. You know, he especially hates you because you're gonna free Orpheus if you even mention it. Just talking about the Emperor. I am one of those terrible people. Uh, I slept <laughs> with the squid and I deeply, deeply, deeply regret it. Uh, especially to the horror of everyone's mentality when they show up uh, when they're linked to you. Like, like, seriously, I thought I was just building, like, rapport to get on his good side. Because, you know, maybe if you developed a, a, a bromanship, a bromance, maybe the Emperor would, like, divulge more. And then, like, in the dream dance, 
for some reason, you know, he's sitting there shirtless. And, you know, that's where mistakes were made. Two dialogue choices in, it's like, uh, hey, how would you uh, like to get to third base and explore things that are normally deeply hidden on the internet? And I was like, well, I got this far. I guess I'm just too curious to say no. I have the mental fortitude to see through this. Why not? Let's get freaky with 3D Squidward. And, uh, wow, Larian, uh, the eye bleach. Why did this need to exist? This isn't just like some elaborate setup to hide my tentacle fetish, I, I promise you. I was just too curious to play it safe. But man, do I kind of wish I did play it safe. It's even, it's even more hilarious because like, I went down the route, I was like, yeah, say no to Squidward. Have, why don't you put on your human paper bag face uh, and then we can just like do this because you made me do the character select at the beginning of the game. And then you wake up and you're like, surprise, Squidward's back and everyone sees you shame. And he's like, oops, I guess I summoned a portal and, or left my mind open or something. And everyone saw what we did, tee hee. And then <laughs> you can panic and you like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to double down on this. I'm going to strengthen the relationship with the emperor. And he was like, uh, yeah, I'm kind of, uh, tired. And, uh, this was like a one-time thing. So not only were you a one night stand, you literally get nothing from it, but like a Steve achievement for the four liters of eye bleach you now need. But if it's any consolation to myself and my poor mental state coming out of this, I do feel it was kind of like uh, one of those points that just like makes you drive deeper to convince you that the Emperor is doing everything in his power to force you to go full Mind Flayer, but, or keep Orpheus locked up. But I mean, either way, I hope Larian's benefits package comes with a lot of counseling hours because, oof. Uh, so let's wrap this up by kind of talking about my companion paths and the endings that I had. Like I said, the glory of this game is that there's multiple outcomes for almost everyone, and uh, the way that I played it, I feel like I got everyone to the point where I wanted them to be, where I felt they would be best off, except, okay, maybe one. So, like, I saved the night song and made Shadowheart turn against Char and live with her parents. Uh, I broke Willis's contract with Mizora and saved the Duke at the cost of turning him into whatever devilish or tiefling or something. Uh, I made Orpheus become the Mind Flayer, uh, so Lizelle was pissed, uh, but... With Lizelle, I told her to take up where he had left off, uh, and so she flies off to take on Vlacketh wherever she is, and Baldur's Gate 3.5 DLC. Uh, I gave the crown to Gale after not letting him jihad himself uh, so that he could get on what's-her-face's good side. So now Gale is basically just a simp, and he's bomb-free, and apparently now he's like the best wizard ever. Gale's uh, story arc was a bit interesting, but it was like super lame for what is essentially a, a jerk of a god, but Gale's gonna simp and chase that tail anyways. Halson, like I said, he was he was an interesting character, but he was like super weak and not even that much fleshed out. But I mean, like when I was playing, apparently he was important enough to my party to be taken hostage by Orin, uh, which <laughs> surprisingly, I think I forgot about that for like 30 hours of gameplay when I was in Baldur's Gate. Uh, like I said, Minthara... Uh, I folded her in thrice in Act 1, but I don't think uh, an absolute paladin would have lasted that long in my playthrough. Uh, I took Asterion to kill the Vampire Lord uh, after <laughs> loading an old save, uh, which basically took me like an hour, and then I had to kill it a second time because, like I said, when he went back, uh, and I'm like, yep, done, he he fitted me, but uh, at the point where he could perform the ritual and you make yourself a sacrifice. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's where I'm going to draw the line. Uh, and I told him not to do it. Uh, sent all the vampires back to the Underdark, and I didn't let Asterion become a super vampire. Like I said, once I went online and found out what the other outcomes are, this was probably the only time where I felt like I didn't feel, I didn't let a companion become whole, but I felt like it was like the good ending if that made sense. Because the entire time that he's playing with you, he's like, okay, well, you, well, guess what? I'm going to murder you and turn you into ritual fodder. But, you know, why don't you just do that and sacrifice yourself? And, you know, we can have a bromance and we can become the greatest powerful vampire ever uh, and his slave. And I was like, uh, yeah, that's going to be a no for me. But thanks. Like, seriously, every once in a while, like every single conversation you have with him is like, well, 
Wouldn't it be great if you were my personal slave? That would work out, right? So, uh, I don't feel bad telling him to go hide underground. I don't feel like that was a bad ending. And as far as Lazel goes, uh, early on, I think I had the bug or whatever. It's like all the females in the party were unintentionally thirsty for you. Uh, and like she was the first romance. And then I was like, I thought I could do like a harem and basically Shadowheart was like, eh, no thanks. And I was like, ah, I don't want to romance a frog. So when the opportunity at the end of the game to like send her off, I was like, yeah, you, you should, you should go on that conquest like right now. Go, go now. Far, 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 far away. Yeah. Take your dragon. Fly. Fly away. Go away now. The, the one kind of like nice thing out of that, just because that was the way I experienced the game, uh, is reuniting with Chihira and Minsk and putting them in your party is kind of like a happy ending of its own, you know, for the High Harper and I guess the Stone Lord. It was kind of nice not having companions who are like, okay, well, it's been two days. Why haven't we had a snog yet? And uh, I'm saving the one character for last because Karlak was kind of like the sad set of choices. I hope this is the last character and I haven't forgotten anything because otherwise, you know, I'm going to be a fool. But um, I thought I was progressing properly to fix Karlak the same way that I did Will. But even by the end of it, all the infernal metal that you pick up, all the improvements to her uh, infernal heart, you think you would have had enough infernal iron to build her an infernal house with it so that she could live in the regular world. And it was only once I got to the ending and did my ending where I went back and looked up through guys to figure out where I screwed up. And literally, I did everything right to try and fix her engine heart. By the end, you realize that in order to fix her engine heart, you either have to turn her into a mind flare, which you're going to have to love a Squidward, or, you know, let things run its course. In my ending, of course, I didn't let it run its course. She didn't explode, you know, saddened by even the thought of, whoa, yeah, it's like, well, I played with you this entire game. Why don't you just explode? It's, it's even more depressing. If you don't repair any, if you don't repair her engine properly, she just combusts off screen while nobody's watching like super depressing like can you imagine like getting through everything and like having Carlac in the group and she's like uh oh time to explode and then she just like walks off and disappears and like you carry on but like at the end when she interrupts you and goes like uh oh it's time to explode uh I convinced her to go back to the hells and she tells you like oh yeah I'd rather die in front of you than go back to the hells uh so I chose to accompany her in the hells and fight beside her I also feel like that was kind of like the best outcome because I'm just basically a murder bot anyways. Like I said, for all these characters, I don't think I would change their endings. Uh, I feel like maybe Will and Asterion might have had better options for me, but as my first and full proper playthrough, I am so satisfied. Everything now is less about story and more about gameplay. So where does that leave us? In terms of talking about Baldur's Gate 3, just to kind of wrap it up, Originally, I was intending on doing a tadpole free run uh, until I met Gortash, uh, and then I asked a friend uh, why everyone in like their videos can fly, and wh which class learns Mind Blast, and then I found out there was literally, literally no consequence, not even like a purest achievement for self-imposed hard mode by not using any of the tadpoles. So like, up until that point, I didn't tadpole. Uh, I, I never used a single soul coin uh, on Carlac, so I felt like up until that point, I did a buy-the-book D&D campaign. I convinced Orpheus to live and kind of watch and watch uh, his actions and successes of his sacrifice, you know, go somewhere nondescript so that you can just watch as like a squid. And I told him I'd kill him after or whatever. Like, this, this is the laundry list that I was trying to avoid telling you, but I, I think I only have like three of these written down so I'll just go through it. Uh, I didn't find the last pieces of the clown because I hate scavenger hunt quests. Uh, I didn't want to spend two hours retracing all of my steps for, like the three pieces I found for gloves that I'll never use. Like I said, pack rat. I had so many consumables that were worthless because I just ended up hoarding them all instead of having like the fear of missing out and using them. But, like by the end in Act 3, I had an ogre horn I couldn't use. I had uh, what is it, the One Brother's Bell that you can use in the Gauntlet of Shar. But, I mean, all in all, my second playthrough 
is going to be a fun one. You know, honor bound with three custom characters, and then I can keep a fourth slot for plot characters. I don't need to see any more aspects of Shadowheart because I basically just had her present all time in my first playthrough. And you know what? Let's. <laughs> I have some extra borders here. Let's call it at this. I'm going to say right now, this game is rightfully worth gushing over. Uh, and even in award shows that are properly coming out now, which talk about the proper 2023, it's a game worth gushing over. Baldur's Gate 3 was a massive success, and even if you prefer the likes of Tears of the Kingdom, you know, or just you're just going to go back and play more uh, esports, you're going to go play Finals, or you're going to go play Apex, whatever. It's good. It definitely had its spot in the light. It stood above the rest and turned enough heads to hopefully reinvigorate a neglected genre. There are more than enough D&D campaigns, you know, to allow Larian to just kind of pick whatever they want, make bank, sell out, become a uh, uh, NFT seller, who knows. All I know is I'm, I'm hopeful to see what comes after this. So thank you for sticking through my concise version. This was probably the longest recap or review. Uh, or I guess unintelligent string of words I've put together for talking about a game. Uh, worth it for the caliber of the game though, but obviously deserves more than I can serve up. So why don't we pivot uh, to the rest of the podcast topics. There are a few 2023 lists that I just kind of want to talk about, uh, you know, for certain platforms and uh, websites that still publish lists. You know, those websites, the ancient things that put 20 words of text between three video ads and left and right banners. And then, you know, regardless of whether you've been there before, it asks you whether you can give it all of your cookies and harvest your data because those are necessary. But let's let's enjoy it while it lasts. I'm sure at some point all these like Game Awards shows are going to be eight part TikTok videos that end mid sentence because smooth brain people are intrigued when a video loops and they don't realize it. I mean, that's the times that we live in, folks. So let's start with the terrible segue into the Steam Awards, uh, which are were finalized and voted by users like yourself, myself, and all the chads who voted Starfield as the most innovative gameplay. It was voted over Shadow of Doubt and Remnant 2. So you can tell that, like, the people on Steam are just, like, full of shit. Either they liked the graphics so much that they ignored every single aspect about the rest of the game, or trolls are gonna troll. Either way, I think Steam users need to seek some sort of like psychiatric evaluation. Uh, which else? Uh, hats off to the group of people who voted The Last of Us Part 1 Remake as the best soundtrack. Um, it is good. It is above average. But did you not listen to it when the game came out like a decade ago? Uh, I'm trying to review what review outlet said. Final Fantasy 16 winning best soundtrack is fitting because it's like the only thing that it would ever win. I laugh, and it's true, but the soundtrack to Final Fantasy 16 is pretty banging, and just from what I see, it's probably the only standout thing about that game. But do you know what puts like the soundtrack on a whole new level? I found out that, okay, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Masayoshi Soken, the person who composes music for the likes of games like Final Fantasy XIV as well. He had been composing game music from the hospital in 2020 while battling cancer. He made a special presentation that was basically memed by the Final Fantasy XIV community, putting them in tears, or at least, you know, that man's a treasure. Moving on. Uh, VR game of this year was Labyrinth because everyone on Steam just kind of needs a spooky game. Maybe they just need something scarier than real life to keep them grounded. But like most of the games on that list were just a bunch of spooky horror games. Granted, there were it was pretty nice to see a couple normal games on there like uh, Ghost of Tabor uh, and my personal favorite, which I'm glad got on there. Uh, I expect you to die three. I feel like that's the only time it's going to sit in the spotlight. But please, for the love of God, give me I expect you to die four. Best game on Steam Deck went to Hogwarts Legacy, and uh, I don't feel that upset about it. I do feel like they did it proper like a year later by turning around the optimization for the game and making it proper for handhelds rather than leaving it in the state where it just like barely runs at 20 FPS on the Steam Deck. But, and I mean, I say it runs at a 
120 FPS, but let's not forget that if you're on the Steam Deck subreddit, everyone would be like, hey, look at Hogwarts Legacy. It runs at a consistent 45 FPS with like a single shot of them just like looking at a wall. Uh, I did put Diablo 4 as my nominee, kind of ironic based on how much I hated that game for 2023 for everything that it should have been. And yeah, you know, you know, the, I'm not going to defend my list for, you know, being wishwashy and then putting it as a nominee in this list. But if you consider the Steam Deck, if you consider the power envelope, the performance that you can get out of the device, and the fact that I spent basically the first 40 hours of that game uh, on a Steam Deck in Asia, I could play it on like high-speed rail trains and like in shuttles going to like hotels and stuff. I feel like it was acceptable. I felt like the game of the year for the Steam Deck could have been either D4 or Hogwarts Legacy. Or Dredge, you know, the, you know, perfectly good candidates in a popularity contest. Better with Friends had some very uh, spotlighty games that I don't really agree with. Uh, Lethal Company was up there. I refunded Lethal Company because it was basically just like, don't you find Untimely Death wonderful? And I was like, no. I feel like it's just a flavor of the month, just like the same way that Pal World is, but I feel like Pal World has a little more lasting gameplay and quality and guns and the fact that I have evil minions running my farm now. The one interesting thing was seeing Darktide on here. I had a solid Tim the Toolman uh, moment. Uh, a lot of my friends who still are just kind of like Warhammer fanatics are telling me that you know, skill trees are there and content patches have improved the game. I don't know, they might trick me into installing it again, but you never know. It's maybe if I have downtime in my backlog. Uh, Atomic Heart won most outstanding visual style, which, yeah, I think of all the finalists that it came down to and who we had to choose who did visuals the best, I think Atomic Heart did it. Reading comprehension needs to be a global emphasis again. Because Overwatch 2 was in the best games that you suck at, which the internet seems to be confused with games that suck. But I mean, like, rightfully so, the winner was Sifu. Uh, it is the get-your-ass-kicked simulator. And I mean, if we're talking about story-rich finalists, Baldur's Gate 3 was the only game for me in that list. But uh, let's give uh, some spotlight to this a uh, Chinese waifu forever alone game because, uh, as I will now poorly translate, directly translate it, finished, surrounded by beauty, uh, maybe next time, why don't we just create a, a whole new category for forever alone dating games? And that way we can get a stronger community response or stronger community representation based on, you know, player and playtime. And don't scoff, I'm sure there is as many people who have three-minute Baldur's Gate sessions as there are people who play for eight hours straight in these waifu dating games. Sit back and relax titles were uh, a bit lopsided as, you know, Dave the Diver had to compete with poorly ported City Skylines 2, a train simulator, Potioncraft, uh, I think it was like Coral Island. I believe Potioncraft was a game on Game Pass for a few months, but I kind of missed my window to play that. So yeah, Long and short of it is, the Steam Awards were a little bit confusing. On the other side of this, uh, Eurogamer put out a top 50, which, you know, when you put out a top 50 of 2023, you're kind of just listing off all the games that came out that year that just, like, weren't awful. And I'm gonna start out right now by saying I'm going to overlook the fact that Eurogamer put Starfield as, like, number 7 on this list, the uh, monsters, since they rightfully stuck Diablo 4, you know, right in the middle. Except, uh, they put D4 one place higher than Dave the Diver. So, I'm not gonna go into, like, every single placement, especially since I feel like they got most of everything else right. Because, jokes aside, I did kind of look at their list uh, and just saw a couple titles that I have to put back on my radar. I don't know if I'm gonna buy it right away, but uh, Pikmin 4 is an example of a game that I've just made so many Switch game lists this year. Like I said, it had my interest. I'm kind of over playing games on the Switch, but I don't know, uh, maybe one way or another, I'll check it out. You know, yar. Uh, Talos Principle 2, I've seen a few times on different lists too. I had a falling out with 
Talos Principle 1 because as much as I loved puzzle games and, you know, being able to get through them, to Talos Principle 1 felt like it was more of a chore than a game sometimes. So I don't know. I'll keep it on my radar, but I'm not that hopeful. Maybe it'll come on Xbox Game Pass. And just because Owlcat Games falls into my beloved CRPG category, and they probably lost the uh, lottery when it came to deciding which landmark franchise they were going to develop a CRPG game with, uh, Warhammer Rogue Trader is on my list because I think Warhammer 40k could probably be as deep as any other franchise, including Dungeons Dragons. And I mean, right now, I'm just going to ride the high that you know, turn-based RPGs are going to be great until they break my heart again. I do give a lot of credit to Alcat Games because Kingmaker and uh, Wrath of the Righteous were fun, you know, but they didn't have the polish that Baldur's Gate 3 did, and they didn't have the super variety, although they were definitely text-heavy. Uh, I will definitely support Alcat Games, though, as I feel like they're still one of the handful of companies who weren't just doing what I felt like were over-glorified widescreen hacks, and, uh, Fixing Windows XP crashes, kind of like Beamdog did, because Beamdog certainly didn't make multiplayer any better in those enhanced editions for Baldur's Gate 1 2. So with that, let's talk about what I'm looking forward to. Uh, like a Dragon Infinite Wealth comes out today, actually, and I'm just downloading this while I'm talking, so this was a little bit of my break. Uh, it, surprise, it's an easy day one purchase for me. Uh, the pricing aside, I know the internet is in like a storm that they're gating the uh, roguelike dungeon and additional content behind $15. Go on Fanatical, the, get 18% off, like, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. I say this because there are a lot of reviews right now that are basically just gushing that this game is on par, if not better, than the original Like a Dragon. I put about five hours into the demo, and just somehow, you know, teaming up with Kiryu feels like the aligning of the cosmos. You know, that was before they told you that, yeah, Kiryu has cancer. This is going to be the last game. And I'm like, why? But I don't know, moping aside, uh, to, to play that demo, I had to beat Like a Dragon Gaiden first, you know, Like a Dragon Gaiden, the man who is still called Jiryu. Uh, the ending was interesting showing how the stories lined up with the last Yakuza game and kind of trying to segue to make it look like it's canon with Like a Dragon. Uh, mostly spoiler here, but the story is shoestring at best. It does kind of end in like a touching moment when you get five minutes of emotion after bluntly murdering everything for seven hours. You know, you have Kiryu and suddenly you get five minutes into the game. You get five minutes into the game and like you're like, okay, nobody's gonna know who you are. They're like, oh shit, everybody knows who you are. And then you go through and just like beat everyone up, fix accuse stuff, you know, so on and so forth. Because like after the first 30 minutes of the game, you basically just throw hiding out the window. Like he's not incognito or anything anymore. Everyone just kind of tells everyone where he is and what he's doing and how he's doing. It's it's even kind of weird, like We'll talk about the ending because I don't really think there's that much to talk about in the actual game. Uh, they tell you that uh, agents are randomly recording his grave for some reason and like family members notice it and they just start talking to a hidden camera as as if they think, oh, it's definitely Kiryu, you know, he's definitely the kind of guy who would set up a network of camera cameras and DVR everything 24-7. But I don't know, I guess that was the only way that they could set it up to you know, pull at your heartstrings when he sees everyone carrying on, saying that they're strong. Kiryu basically said that he relied on their strengths more than they relied on his. It was a very satisfying ending, but I literally just played it so that I could get to the demo. <laughs> I literally spent like six hours in Yakuza Brawler mode, just long pressing punches because that was the only thing that you had to do before I kind of got to enjoy the fun aspect of agent mode. And I mean, like, that six hours is a little bit padded because uh, I wanted to play poker and golf. And yeah. Reminds me why I spend so much time playing the original. Just, like, playing the business minigame and printing money. Uh, like a Dragon Gaiden cut out so many minigames, but, you know, maybe Slots and Pachinko are finally out the door. But anyways, Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth. Uh, it's really a lot of fun for what I played in the demo, and I can't wait to 
stop doing this podcast so I can go and play it. I haven't really looked into it, but I kind of wonder what minigames they're going to put in. Because it seems like golf, darts, you know, and every everyone's other favorite game, alcoholism, is making it back into the game. But, like, there's, like, Sujimon and taking pictures of naked men, which definitely made it into the game somehow. Uh, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't think, uh... Like a Dragon Gate and Man Without a Name was worth the sticker price, but just judging from the demo and like the how much they didn't really break the mold, but kind of like expanded Hawaii for <laughs> infinite wealth, I feel like I'm, I'm really gonna enjoy this game. You know, despite the fact that a lot of people are pissed that Young Yeah uh, is just like the worst English voice actor for this role ever, the people are basically just like describing like, yeah, remember how. Uh, in uh, Destiny, when they casted Peter Dinklage as like the little floating robot talking about wizards on the moon, they're like, yeah, four times worse. And like, like personally, English voice acting sucks. Like, it's always an afterthought. There are only like six voice actors who ever do anything properly. I guess you know, if we start talking about Baldur's Gate, then maybe we can expand it to twelve, right? But uh, yikes. If I had to listen to Yang Ye's voice acting in English, I would play with the sound off. Although, if, if we're being real here, I would probably put it above Genshin Impact's English voice acting, because I couldn't listen to whatever English Paimon for more than like 30 seconds without being infuriated. I am not an otaku. I do not pretend to understand Japanese, but like the professionalism and the emotion and the uniqueness of the voices and the delivery seems so much more professional than English voice actors. And even even the generic ones always seem to have immersed me into like the setting so much better. But I think maybe that's because like English voice actors are treated like garbage. They're like they're like the bar mat at the end of the night. They're they cost next to nothing. They're never paid what they're worth. And at the end of the night, some poor bastard is going to pay money to have a night of spilled drinks. I don't know what I was trying to make out of that, but anyways. Infinite Wealth Another game that's coming out soon that people are probably waiting for is Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, which comes out in February for all of you who like the franchise, but you like it more in a fan fiction website kind of way that doesn't really want to stick to the story, but isn't afraid to make Barrett fall in love with Sid. There are a couple things that concern me about the follow-up title. First, they mentioned that Sephiroth is, is going to appear more in the game, and to that, I say, please, Square Enix, just just stop. Wasn't the imaginary fight in Falling Space enough? Sephiroth summons Meteor not to save the Earth, but to try and kill three characters who haven't even left Midgar yet. And I mean, like, I want to be clear, there are aspects of Sephiroth just past Midgar that, understandably, yes, you know Sephiroth was involved, but he doesn't, you're not expected to find him or encounter him as much. As an example, uh, Midgar Zolom on a stick in the marsh. Was that not just kind of like the iconic, uh, what am I even doing trying to approach this man? I just unlocked Blade Beam and I'm hitting snakes in a field. I just had like a 20 minute cutscene about how much I wish I could just go home and see my mom. Stray dogs are a risk to my party wiping at this point. And I mean, like, like I said, early on in the game, you can fight the Zolom yourself and experience firsthand why modern games need autosave as it kicks your ass. But like, Sephiroth's involvement, are we just getting like a cutscene of him doing that? Are we going to run to him in the field? Are we going to meet him at Fort Condor? They've already told us, and we've already seen videos that Cloud and Sephiroth story time retelling of going to the reactor in Nibelheim will allow you to do team up attacks with each other. I didn't realize that they were best friends or that that was canon, knowing that you're talking about a game that came out like 25 years ago. And I, I know this is like they took a left turn instead of a right turn to come down this plot path, but like the plot is already so far gone, it's just like they're just making shit up as they go. They keep talking about how they're going to do right of uh, introducing Zack into the story, but at this point I'm just so disenfranchised with this series. You know, let's not even talk about the fact that it's only coming out on PlayStation 5. We're going to wait six months and it's going to come out on PC and then everyone's just going to buy it again because it has the gameplay and the graphics and the caliber that rightfully so makes it worth buying. But uh, 
I don't think you would want people who know Final Fantasy VII to try and piece together the point that they're trying to make with these remakes. Moving on before I get too many people with PS5s and enjoyment out of Final Fantasy VII Remake more angry at me. Princess Peach finally gets her own game uh, in Princess Peach Showtime. I don't want to hate it, but I feel like it turned out to be just like a little girl's dress-up game. And as a grown man, I am threatened by that. I am threatened by any game who I am not their target market. But I, what I mean is, there are a certain level of casual games, Super Mario Wonder, you know, those kind of ones that award you for understanding timing and mechanics and awareness <laughs> that keeps the game playful. And to me, that's like the elementary school stuff. And then there's like Barbie's Horse Adventure that falls to the lines of pet your horse and quick time events to ensure that your horse is the prettiest. And I think people are just going to enjoy it for the fact that it's just kind of like a Nintendo polished caliber game. I just don't feel like it's going to give Peach the proper spotlight the same way Luigi got the spotlight when he became a ghost hunter. Sometimes I think girls should kick ass a little harder, you know? I wish everyone would, you know, go on social media and put out the boo urns, you know, get them to release, I don't know, Super Peaches RPG 2. Bring back Gino just in case. It doesn't look like it's going to sell well. Uh, last game I want to mention in this section of games, I think I was supposed to classify as, I know they're coming out, uh, is South Park Snow Day. I had some mixed feelings on this one. You know, on one hand, I really enjoyed the stick of truth and the fractured butthole. Uh, at the same time, because they were basically a true testament to the TV series and always bring its like comedic style. But for this one, there's aspects. Like they got the pricing rate for what looks like it needs to be uh, a pricing point for a better with friends co-op title. It just looks really, really jank. Like some co-op students had to turn around a game over COVID. I just, I hope I'm wrong. I also hope it doesn't involve the UBC, uh, the Ubisoft launcher because, man, Ubisoft is just digging themselves into a hole. Like, talk about, like, all this stupidity of, like, not only being, like, literally the worst launcher, the most unpopular launcher. They're like, yeah, people should just feel comfortable not owning their games ever again. And considering that they just shut down the crew so that you can just never play the game again? Uh, yeah. Listen here, Ubisoft. You just keep tricking people into playing uh, Rainbow Siege while everyone gets on with their life. And please, you know, just this once, go bankrupt. Uh, just just, just once. Just just this one time, please go bankrupt. Uh, there's just a, a few more games that I want to talk about. Uh, they don't really have... Uh, I just know that they're going to show up eventually this year. Uh, Hades 2, they said that was supposed to be released this year. You know, if we're lucky, that's early September. If not, sadness. Uh, Metaphor Red... Ref, ref, oh my god. Refantasio <laughs> is an RPG that looks uh, incredibly close to Persona without playing like Persona. Uh, I mean, like, it looks really cool because it has, like, the complete art style and kind of, like flow that you expect out of a Persona game, but I mean, I don't know, just wait until the summer or the fall or whenever so that you can be prepared for more JRPG gushing from me. Visions of Mana, I, I had to take a second look at because I thought they were just doing another Secret of Mana, like, redo, but with Trials of Mana 3D treatment, because like, if you look, if you go to like the Square Enix website, like, there's the little red-headed dwarf, there is a, a red-shirted guy with a sword, you know, and just like a female companion, which you realize is like some sort of like fox thing, and a, a dog, a, a dog thing. They're calling it the first mainline title in the Mana series in over 15 years. And uh, just judging from the gameplay, I feel like this game is in for a rough time. I feel like in the process of getting out a new game, they forgot about like the feel and the flow of it, but I mean, like, you're gonna have to watch the trailers to understand what I'm talking about, or, you know, maybe you won't understand what I'm talking about and you just think I'm crazy. Let's just hope they do better than they did with the uh, 2.5D remake. Lastly, for two things, uh, Nintendo leaker Zippo has apparently disappeared from the internet. Uh, the only reason why I'm, I'm bringing this guy up is he's a leaker who's kind of well-known for really accurate leaks, and from the sounds of it, before he disappeared, he was hinting that 2024 is the year of the Switch 2, which 
sounds like it's becoming more of a thing than people might imagine. So I think we're gearing up for a, a later, latter half of the year kind of holiday season for a release and maybe earlier on for an announcement. But in either way, a lot of people are kind of pessimistic for what's coming out in earlier Nintendo Directs because uh, these titles are just becoming m more scarce than ever. And I mean, like, believe me, as someone who's just like a handheld enthusiast, I'm very both excited and kind of like expectations tempered for what this device is going to be. You know, any device that could utilize DLSS 3 is pretty great. From the leaks, it sounds like it's supposed to be 120 hertz gaming. Realistically, if they could do 90 hertz gaming, I, I think they would just like have a great time. Anything that starts getting you into solid like 1080p, 60fps, even with upscaling, I think is a solid experience. Just so that you're not getting like half resolution versions of games that look like PS2 Vice City, you know, Gumby Edition. I just still wish we existed in an era where handheld APUs could become better and could be taken around and then like put into a Switch like dock with an extremely light eGPU enclosure like 6 uh, 6600M or like a 40 watt 4050 or, or something, you know, something that doesn't break the bank for everyone and lines up that 60 FPS with minimal assistance. Because it's depressing playing games like Star Ocean R being stuck at 30 FPS. And even when I'm gaming on my ROG Ally, the, my instinct is, is always to go to 900p native before messing around with EXSS or FSR3. You know, speaking of SFR, uh, FSR3, I did get my first taste of frame gen on the ROG Ally and uh, Like a Dragon Gaiden, you know, like a Dragon Gaiden, give it up, not even Kiryu's family thinks he's dead. Uh, it gave me a fair bit of hope for what I can expect if you can lock in baseline 60 FPS and then start getting into the above 100 FPS, kind of like every, what everyone's talking about without having to resort to 40% resolution. But I mean, like, if you look at AFMF in the state that it is right now for, like, the ROG Ally, the Vaseline screen is something that I can live without. It's just, it's way too smudgy for what I would call left-right gameplay. If you're playing a game where you're continually just walking forward, I feel like a lot of games are optimized so that, you know, motion is fluid when you go in that direction. Maybe it's just something that we need to work on so that, you know, left and right movement is done in sync with, like, the refresh rate of the screen or whatever it can process. Because... Frame gen looks like garbage, I'm sorry. I saw the announcement for the MSI Claw, which it looks like a ROG ally, but I guess they're gonna support Intel this time, which uh, seems cool, except for the fact that I'm kind of a little bit worried about how efficient it's gonna be. But I'm out of the handheld game until they start properly announcing, you know, the ROG ally too, uh, since I have both the ROG ally as my games that I play for visual purposes, and then my Win 4 for basically every single other game that I want to play at between 45 FPS to 60 FPS. And I'll probably leave it on this point. I do really like my Win 4 or my ROG Ally based on its form factor. It's the one that I reach for first. It's the one that I'm not afraid to load games on just because it initially was so easy just to get the, a 20 to 80 SSD in there without getting like uh, an adapter off AliExpress, but overall I've become very selective about what goes on my ROG Ally, and I hope that th that is something that we're moving away from with further iterations of APU handhelds. I don't feel like MSI Claw is gonna do that, uh, and I'm even more less hopeful seeing uh, the performance benchmarks for the 8000 what we're just going to call a refresh since it's just going to use uh, 780M GPU in its higher end chips anyways. I think most people can be happy that you can pick up uh, an ROG Ally for 500 bucks Canadian open box without having to be too much worried about like a proper hardware refresh because you know they're going to slap in you know maybe extra RAM maybe their RAM is going to be a little bit faster maybe they're going to fix the SD card slot. Cool. That system is still going to come back at over $700 US to compete all the other things at the same price point. So I think 
everyone's gonna have to learn to be a lot more creative or you know maybe afterburner is just gonna tear shit up in the handheld in the handheld scene who knows but that's it that's gonna do it for the episode i think i've talked your ear off enough uh i am hoping to get back into monthly releases this one was super late just because we were recording motivation you know whatever i do i do this for fun so there's definitely got to be a fun aspect of doing this otherwise you know interest falls off the one thing i have to say though is i'm glad that everyone who interested in the episode is just kind of sticking through once we get through next month which i imagine is going to be me talking about uh like a dragon infinite wealth i will try and get back to start of the month episodes or else breaking these things down into maybe more bite-sized and concise episodes just so that i can get time to record and edit and upload in a timely manner so once again starting out 2024 thanks everyone thank you for tuning in let's cheers and hide away from 2024 and all the woes that are coming to the game developer market blizzard just laid off i guess microsoft just laid off 1900 people in blizzard and killed their open world game which you know what i don't want to see a single game that blizzard is putting out with the staff that they have right now it sounds terrible and it's a terrible thing to say but i just don't want to see anything that they have to offer i am glad that microsoft is cleaning house and i hope it brings back blizzard to the caliber of games it used to be i say that knowing they killed basically rare off so i don't know in any case let's hope 2024 just stops being bad because and i hope japan can finally get a break because it always seems to be like one problem one earthquake one tsunami after another and just as someone who looks at forecasts and budgets 2024 is going to be a mixed bag of a year so stay safe happy gaming and uh don't push yourselves too hard i'll see you next time my name is dan you're listening to game in hand thanks a lot